You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Parables, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparables.com. Take your Bibles, if you've got them, and open them up to John chapter 12. And as you're turning there, let me just set the stage for where we're going and uh, where we've been. Uh, we're a few weeks into a series that we've titled uh, The Story of God. And so what we want you to see in this series is that the Bible, this book, in all of its parts, is telling one unified story that leads us to Jesus. And our hope and our prayer for you is that you'll see how this story about Jesus intersects with your own personal story. Because the reality is the Bible's telling your story. And the Bible speaking to all your hopes and your dreams and your longings and your desires and uh, your questions. Is there a God? If there is a God, what is he like? Who, who is he? Who am I? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with the world? Is there any hope for redemption? Is there any way that I can find satisfaction and fulfillment and a happy redemptive ending to my own personal story? Yes. Uh, All of those questions are answered for you in the Bible, which is telling your story. And ultimately, they all find their answer in the person of Jesus Christ, um, whom this story is meant to lead us to. And so that's the point of this series. That's our hope and our prayer for you always as a church. And so with that context, uh, what I want to do now is I want to look at uh, John chapter 12 this morning with you. And uh, we're going to read a section here Then I'm going to flip over to Mark chapter 1. So... If you will, look at John 12, and we'll start in verse 12. And it says this, excuse me, uh, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, which means the Lord saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And if we flip over to Mark chapter 1, we read this in verse 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And here's what Jesus had to say. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray once again together. Father, as we we just sang, you have liberated us from the tyranny and the oppression of sin and Satan and death and the domain of darkness. Only a king can do that. And so, Father, I am, I'm very mindful that we all come into this room this morning with different expectations, different longings, different things we're waiting on and hoping for. Would you meet us right where we are and open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear and trust and give ourselves and surrender to the reality that we were made for King Jesus? Show that to us. And And King Jesus, I ask you to satisfy hearts this morning. And I ask you to pour out your spirit in a way that we leave full. um, And that that we learn to walk with you in that fullness. And live with you in that fullness. And celebrate you um, at all times. 
that we learn to live as a church on mission, as ambassadors unto you as our king. And I pray, God, that you would awaken hearts in this room that are dead unto new life. Um, I pray that you would uh, take the counterfeit kings that we have given our allegiance to, that you would dethrone them and do it because you love us and do it for our own good and, of course, ultimately for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, two weeks ago, my oldest daughter, Lucy, had a birthday and turned five. And and a shout out for Lucy Blue. And we have this big party, all this food and all these presents. And we have this rule with the grandparents that says, look, at Christmas and at birthday, just get our kids one or two things each. Like, don't go nuts and get them a thousand things. And, of course, my mom's reply is always, well, you got everything you ever wanted as a kid, which is true. And that's what's wrong with me now. And so we say, no, look, don't do that. Just get them one or two presents. And, of course, birthday comes, things are blown out of proportion, 10,000 million trillion gifts. And there's one gift that stands above them all, quite literally. It's this massive, majestic, glorious Princess Sophia castle. And, uh, and so, yeah, yay. And so all the children are smitten with this thing. I mean, the eyes wide open, like this has totally captured their tiny hearts. They want to open it and play with it. And of course we say, no, let's wait till after the party. And so after the party, we get things cleaned up. We put this thing together. It's huge. It's got all these accessories and intricate parts and it takes forever and we get it put together. And, and then Lucy just kind of stands in front of it. Just, this is amazing. This thing is awesome. And by this point, Carrie and I are exhausted, right? We've thrown this party. We've done all this stuff. Everybody's out of our house. We've got it cleaned up. And so I look at Lucy. I give her a kiss. I say, happy birthday. I love you. I'm glad you're here. I'm going to go sit in my chair uh, with my coffee and with my book. Um, don't bother me. It's just play, play with your castle. I love you. Play with your castle. And I'm going to go and I'm going to sit down. No sooner than I sit down, my two-year-old walks right in front of me right in front of Lucy, right up to this castle, grabs this castle, stares at Lucy like a boss and says, mine. (laughs) And uh, that does not go over very well in my house. And so Lucy and Susanna get into a fight and they're going back and forth with this, my castle, my castle, no, my castle. And so I have to put my book down and my coffee down and get up and diffuse this bomb and talk to them about loving and sharing with one another and all this stuff. And Then I look at them and say, all right, play nice. I'm going to go sit down. I'm going to relax. Play nice. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) Five minutes later, I hear from the back bedroom, my castle, no, my castle, no, my castle. So I get up and I'm I'm more irritated. I walk down the hall. I, you know, set them straight again. Look, guys, play nice. I'm going to take the castle away. I go back. I get my book. I sit down to relax and, and just enjoy some peace and quiet. Five minutes later, here we go again. My castle, my kid, they're fighting over this thing. And so this, by this point, I am furious and I'm irritated. And as I'm walking down the hall towards their room, I have thoughts, I kid you not, going through my mind like, these kids have no idea how hard I work for them. They have no idea all that I do for them. They have, they have literally have no clue. Why can't they let me relax? And I, even though I know it's not going to solve the problem, I'm ready to just destroy this castle. Like, I'll have visions of burning it to the ground. And it's in, it's, it's, it's in that moment, before I step through the threshold into their room, that I'm struck with this thought, thankfully before I walked into their room. <laughs> 
the only reason I'm so angry right now is because their castle has interfered with my castle. Their tiny little plastic kingdom has interfered with my tiny little personal kingdom. My comfort, my convenience, my leisure, my time, my happiness, my coffee, my book, my chair, my kingdom. And, and, here, and here's, what, here's, here's what this story illustrates for us. This is what I was struck with in this moment. You know what? This story, this little episode out of my life is actually a microcosm of the whole human problem. And it's illustrating for us what the Bible says is the greatest problem with human beings and the root of all the brokenness that we experience in our world. All of us, if we're honest, want to be the kings of our own castles. Or as the great uh, theologians of the 1980s once said, uh, tears for fears. <laughs> Everybody wants to rule the world. Look at those guys and tell me they don't know what they're talking about. That's Jared and I are going to recreate this for the website. Everybody, if we're honest, everybody wants to rule the world. And you know what happens when everybody wants to rule the world and everybody's competing for the same throne in the same kingdom? War. Absolute nightmare, utter brokenness. And by the way, these guys are just quoting Augustine. So here's what Augustine said. Augustine said that the gravitational pull of every human heart is toward what he called the kingdom of self. It's what the late David Foster Wallace, who died an agnostic, he actually committed suicide, took his own life. David Foster Wallace said the gravitational pull of every human heart is to live for your own skull-sized kingdom. Skull size. What he's saying is, show me your hat size, and I'll show you how big your kingdom really is. It's all up here. <laughs> David Foster Wallace says, this is where your kingdom exists. And so what guys like Tears for Fears, or Augustine, or David Foster Wallace are saying is what we already know to be true by experience. Dude, like, I just kind of want to be the boss of my own life. I don't like you telling me what to do, and I kind of want to do life according to my definitions of reality. You know, I want your schedule to revolve around my schedule. If I can be late all day because I'm the king. But if you're late, like, don't you know how precious my time is? I want your life to revolve around mine. And we want to live according to our definitions of my time, my money. I worked for this. I can spend this how I want. My sexuality, my body. It's, this, it's mine. It's mine. And here's the core conviction that I want to put forward for you this morning and have us wrestle with. Everybody wants to rule the world. The problem is we make really bad kings. And we desperately need a better king. And Tim Keller's way smarter than me, so I apologize for the lengthy quote, but let me just let him speak to our hearts for just a second. Here's what Keller says. He says, If you operate on this principle, I'm the king of my world, I'm the boss of my life, I'm the captain of my own soul, the master of my fate, it never works out well for you. You must anxiously try to control and protect your kingdom. You must grip your throne and hold on for dear life, lest someone knock you off. See, living for our own kingdoms makes us all natural enemies. At any moment, we must be ready to go to war against one another, which is happening in our, in our world right now on a national level. It's happening in our city right now. It's happening on political levels. It's happening in your life on personal relational levels. We go to war with one another because we're trying to protect our kingdoms. 
Keller continues. He says, this controls and consumes us. The great irony is that instead of becoming the ruler, we become the ruled, enslaved to our own selfish desires. It destroys our character, our relationships, our souls. In essence, we need a better king. If you want to run your life, you're going to run it into the ground. I promise you. You need a better king. And the good news that we celebrate today in the story of God, where we are in the story, is that we have one. And in fact, it also just happens to be Palm Sunday today. So the story of God is intersecting pretty divinely, pretty amazingly with Palm Sunday. So historically, throughout the church, Christians have set aside the Sunday before Easter as a focused celebration that God kept his promise to send a king. And they sort of uh, relive this narrative where Jesus rolls into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry and he's hailed as the king of the Jews. What they don't realize in that moment is he's also the king of the universe. And he's the king of your life. And your only hope is to recognize that and surrender to him. And so what I want to do in light of where we are in the story, in light of Palm Sunday, is I want to focus on this passage in John chapter 12 with Jesus' triumphal entry. And I want to do it in three movements. Okay, I like to tell you where we're going. It helps me. Here's where we're going. I want to talk about the coming of the king. And we'll focus much of our time here. I want to talk about the call of this king on your life. And then I want to end with the coronation of this king. All right, the coming, the call, and the coronation. And the point is, you need a better king. All right, um, with that, let's jump into the passage and talk about this king's coming. So turn with me to John 12, or I'll put it on the screen for you. And um, let's start in verse 12. Here's what it says. It says, the next day, this large crowd, this is lots of people, have come together for this feast in Jerusalem, and they've heard that Jesus is coming there. And so they take branches of palm trees. Now, a palm branch is a symbol for military victory, okay? They take these branches of palm trees, when we call it Palm Sunday, and they're waving them in the streets, and they're crying out, Hosanna, the Lord saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Your king is coming. Here's what I want to do. I want to leave the streets of Paragold for just a moment, and I want us to go to the streets of Jerusalem. So can you jump in a time machine and just go there with me? I want you to put yourself... In this crowd, okay, imagine yourself in this crowd and try to feel the energy and the excitement and the hype and the anticipation of this moment. Um, this, is, this is a massive celebration. The closest thing I can compare it to was being in downtown Kansas City when the Royals won the World Series. Go Royals, right? Yeah. Carrie. Uh, thank you. Um, so it was crazy. We thought we were going to get stampeded to death and die, and Carrie was eight months pregnant. We never should have done it. But... Um, Kansas City waited 29 years for that celebration, okay? These people in ancient Israel, the ones we're standing with right now on the streets of crowded Jerusalem, have waited centuries for this moment. If you are an ancient Israelite, you you grew up sitting on your grandfather's knee hearing the legend about this king who was coming. You grew up sitting around the dinner table talking about this king who is coming. You grew up going to the temple and hearing the teachings about this king who is coming. 
Your whole life, the bedtime stories that you were told were all about this king who is coming. And now, as an adult ancient Israelite, all your national hopes and expectations aren't rooted in who are we going to elect as president, but they all hang quite literally on this king who is coming. So your whole life, you've banked your promises on the fact that God says he's going to send this king who's going to rescue Israel and then protect them and fight for them and keep them safe and provide for them everything they need and satisfy all their desires and rule over the land with justice and righteousness. So you grew up hearing promises like this one in Jeremiah chapter 23. It says, Behold, the days are coming. This is going to happen, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In the days, in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Can you feel the weight of this moment? The only way you can feel the weight of this moment is to understand the weight of this moment, and I pun intended. You got it. You got to tap into what it feels like to wait. What are you waiting for now? And I don't. I don't mean wait like in terms of what are you putting off, but like what are you longing for and hoping for? I'm talking about your expectations and your dreams and your desires. What is it that you're waiting for? I think you know some of you are waiting uh, for a job to come through and hoping that that will fix all your problems. Some of you are waiting to see if you get accepted into a program and you're hoping that that will change your life. Uh, Some of you are waiting for a spouse. You're waiting on Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright and you're hoping that that will complete you. Many of you are waiting on the American dream to finally happen. So you graduated, you got married, you got the kids, you got the cars, you got the house, you got the throw pillows. Like you've got all that stuff and yet you find yourself waiting and wanting more stuff. So what is it that you're waiting for? What is it that you're longing for? Here's what you got to understand. When Jesus rolls into town on this donkey, uh, he's not just fulfilling some obscure prophecy from Zechariah 9 that says the king's going to come in a donkey. He's actually fulfilling all the waiting, all the longings, all the hopes, and all the dreams of these ancient Israelites. And this is probably at the point where you're saying, that's cool, but what in the world does that have to do with me? And the answer to that question is everything. Because here's the deal. uh, Their longing for a king is not just their story. It's your story. I would submit to you this morning that all you, everything you're waiting on, all your waitings, all your longings, all your hopes, all your dreams and desires are mere echoes of your longing for a king. A savior who who can redeem your life out of the pit and heal you and put you back together and hold you together and restore you and fight for you and protect you and keep you safe and give you refuge and make you whole and satisfy you and deliver you. You, raise your hand. If you don't want that, I would love to meet you and talk to you after the service. Like, you don't have to be a disciple of Jesus to recognize that you want that. You know why? Because you were made for a king. And in order to understand that and feel the weight of that, we actually need to rewind the story. And so we need to leave ancient Jerusalem and go back a little bit further, all the way to the Garden of Eden. 
And so here's the Garden of Eden. This is what I want you to understand about this. Take a good hard look at it. In this moment, what you have happening in the Garden of Eden, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you have God's kingdom on the earth. Do you realize that? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which is the space where God dwells, and earth, which is our space where we dwell, at this point in the story in Genesis 1 and 2, the two are one. They completely overlap. And so literally we enjoyed heaven on earth. It was amazing. And guess who was king of that whole space? God was. Look, if you go back to, if you open, you want to know what the, the story of the Bible is all about? N.T. Wright said the whole Bible is telling the story about how God became king. It's all about how God is the king. And you see it right out of the blocks if you go to chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, in the beginning there was God, and then God says in verse 3, and it happens. You know what that is? That's a king decreeing stuff, and it happens. Like whatever the king decrees, whatever, he, whatever his will is, he gets it. It happens. And he speaks and says, let there be light, and there's light. And he speaks and says, let there be sky, and there's sky. And he speaks and he says, let there be land, and there's land. Everything exists by definition in subjection to him. He's the king, and, and he's a good king. And he rules all over all of this with this providential wisdom and this love. It says that he, gave, he, he takes human beings and creates us and sets us in the middle of this perfect world. And he says he gives us everything. He gives us everything we could ever need or ever long for in himself. And in this world, there's no war. There's no crime. There's no hate. There's no betrayal. There's no relationship breakdown. There's no infidelity. There's no lying. There's no, there's no sickness. There's no decay. There's no disease. There's no death. And you want to know what probably for me is the most mind-blowing reality about this kingdom, when the kingdom of God is on earth, is that this king is so unbelievably gracious, he shared his kingdom with us. Here's the deal. You, you were not only made for a king, but you were made to rule with this king. This is amazing. You were made to rule with this king. And so if you go back and you read, let me just kind of read it to you. It says, God says this in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. God gave you dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And if you skip down to verse 28, it says, And then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Like, go, go take control, God says. Like, do this. Have dominion over everything. And so God shares his kingdom with you, and God creates us to rule with him, and to partner with him in building a beautiful, flourishing world. The only question I have after looking at my own life and in my own heart and after watching the news this week is what happened to that world? Why do we not live in that world anymore? Well, here's what John Ortberg says. John Ortberg says, and, and we'll put this on the screen, he says, the reason why children are natural-born tyrants and dictators is because human beings were actually made to rule with God, 
The problem is that all of us have chosen to rule without God. And so you were made to rule with God. The problem is that we have chosen to rule without God. I know we unpacked this a couple of weeks ago, but we have to understand this in context. What happens in the garden is the king says, look, you can have everything, my whole kingdom. Here's the keys to the kingdom. Let's, let's partner together. I love you and you love me and we exist in this relationship. Like, let's make the world flourish together for my glory and for your joy. Let's do this together. He gives us one stipulation, one limitation, one boundary. Don't eat from that tree. Trust me, it will kill you. And what we did in that moment is we decided that, you know what, I think I trust my own instincts over yours and I can run my life better than you. And so we took things into our own hands, literally. Like plucked the fruit, disobeyed our king, and in that moment committed mutiny. Like all out rebelled against God and the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, I have no idea like where you come from. And I know we're, you know we're here in the religious south. I don't know how you define things. I'm not sure how you define sin. But that's the essence of sin. We think of sin as like, I don't know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll or something. Like only the external things that you do. And some of that is extremely sinful. But fundamentally sin, we see in the garden, is taking things into your own hands. It's grasping for control that God did never intended for you to have. Grasping for power that he himself did not entrust to you. And it's deciding, you know what, I can run my life better than you. I can run my life better than you. My castle. And here's what happens in that moment. I'll put it on the screen for you. Tragically, the kingdom of God and earth are divorced. Sin separates. And so you have this, ma- this horrible split between the two. And the Bible uses all kinds of different language to describe these two spaces. Uh, but the primary phrases that are used, you see in places like Colossians 1.13, is that heaven, the space where God dwells, uh, especially dwells, is called the kingdom of God, sometimes the kingdom of heaven. Um, and then earth, Paul says in Colossians 1.13, is the domain of darkness. So uh, the kingdom of God is this place that's full of God's presence and his love and his goodness and his justice and beauty. And then you have our space is full of sin and evil and suffering and terrorism and all this stuff. And Paul goes on to say in Romans 6, 9, he says, In the domain of darkness, the tragic irony is nobody's really free. In seeking to become the ruler of your own life, you always become the ruled. Because nobody can actually escape sin and death. Isn't that crazy? Like no matter how, no matter how many friends you have, how successful you are, how, how degrees and money and like toys and experiences you pad your life with, like you, your kingdom is never strong enough to withstand death. In the end, death is just going to strip it all away from us. It's the great equalizer. It's the great equalizer. And so Paul says in Romans 6, 9, death has dominion over us. Death is the boss now in this world. It just takes everything from us. And so our only hope for escaping this darkness and escaping this world, our only hope for the freedom and the liberation that we sang about this morning is to have a better king. 
Look, you were made for a king. You were made to rule with this king. We've decided to rule without this king. And so we need a better king. The king himself. And the good news is God promises to send him. And so all throughout the story, you have these promises. Uh, Genesis 3.15 says this king's going to crush the head of evil. Genesis 12.3 says this king's going to come and bless the world. Zechariah 9 says this king is going to come and rule from sea to sea and bring peace to the nations. Isaiah 61 says he's going to bring good news to the poor. He's going to bind up the brokenhearted. Anybody brokenhearted this morning? The king wants to bind up the brokenhearted. Um, He wants to set the captives free. Get this, Isaiah 65. This king will create a new heaven and a new earth, and he will wipe away every tear, and death will be no more. One person said there is no Kleenex in this kingdom. There's no tears in this kingdom. This, this king is coming to make all things new. And then you see Jesus in Mark chapter 1 make this glorious declaration. Okay, you with me? Here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1. He hits the scenes and he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. If you're in this room and you feel the weight of your longing for a king... Jesus says the waiting is over. Like the the time is fulfilled. God's kept all of his promises and the king that he promised to send is Jesus. Jesus is the king that you've been longing for. And here's what's amazing. We'll go to the next slide. When Jesus comes, you literally have heaven and earth crashing into one another. This is amazing. So you have this separation between God's kingdom and our kingdom. And when Jesus comes... You have the arrival of this king, and he brings the kingdom of God with him to earth. And so now the two overlap, and that means that Jesus has broken into our world and set up his redemptive administration. It's only a matter of time before he will make all things new. It's only a matter of time. And you see, you see this beginning to happen, right? Jesus comes in and he heals and he restores. And you see him going around and, and forgiving sin. And you see these little pockets of the kingdom of God breaking out. You know what I think is so amazing about this? I think that in, in, in American culture, in, in this culture of Christianity, we tend to have this kind of Star Trek approach to following Jesus. And we have this Star Trek approach to Christianity. Anybody watch Star Trek? I personally did not watch Star Trek. Uh, But my dad did, so I had to watch it growing up. And I remember that every time somebody got into trouble down here, they would pray to a guy named Scotty, and they would say, Beam me, well, yeah, beam me up, Scotty, right? I think we, we, we tend to have this view that says, you know what? In American Christianity, I want to live for my kingdom down here. And when I start to get into trouble, I'll just say, Beam me up, Jesus, and take me to your kingdom up there. Help me to escape down here so that I can go up there. And Jesus never taught us to pray, get me out of here so I can go up there. Jesus taught us to pray, God, would you make up there come down here? Would you make up there come down here? And then Jesus, guys, that's what's happening. Do you realize that? Jesus is making up there come down here, and he's changing the world. And he wants to do it first and foremost in your heart. That's where it starts. 
Your only hope is to let the kingdom of Jesus invade your plastic kingdom. Invade your personal little kingdom and renew you from the inside out. And that's where all of history is moving. So if you go to the next few slides, you'll see that over time, the kingdom of God is going to continue to overlap this domain of darkness and this world of sin. And what we're going to get in the end is this new heavens and this new earth, right? Where once again, God is going to share his rule and reign with us and all will be right in the world. Now let's leave the garden and let's come back here for just a moment and we'll we make some application for us and then we'll close this thing down. Why does this matter so much? Why does it matter that we understand that this is the story the Bible is telling? How God is king and we were made to rule with him under his gracious authority and how we have decided to rule on our own and split. And now in the kingdom of Jesus, he's in the process of overlapping these two once again. Why, is the, why does this matter? Because until you see this, you'll never understand what it looks like to follow Jesus in this life. Look, the call, if you're a disciple of Jesus, the call is not to live however you want here so that you can pray some prayer and uh, you know, attend some church gatherings and you know, read your Bible and then, then escape here and go up there when you die. If you're a disciple of Jesus, the call of the king on your life is to, to surrender to the king now and to live for his kingdom now. To live for his kingdom on earth. Look, the kingdom of God is present and fleshed out in and through the lives of his people. So everywhere you are at Paragold, if you're working on the line, if you're, if you're wiping bottoms, stay-at-home moms, if you're driving down the road and stuck in traffic, if you're checking out in the grocery store line, if you're having coffee with a friend, if you're doing yard work, like if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're full of the spirit of the king. And his plan in your life as he is putting you in places to manifest this story, to extend the rule and the reign of King Jesus all around you. And so this king has put a call on your life. We're going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but he's called you to participate in his kingdom now. And here's what that looks like. Four Ps. All right? I think the call of this king on your life is that he has called you to pray for his kingdom now, to pursue his kingdom down here, to practice his kingdom down here, and to proclaim his kingdom down here. Let me just walk through each of these and make a couple of applications for us, and we're done. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Um, right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us how to pray. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Right? Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I want you to pray like this. Pray with me, our Father, let your kingdom come down here and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So pray that more of the redemptive reality of God would break into your life and your work and your relationships and our church and our city and our nation and our world. Pray that more of King Jesus would break in. And that prayer rebukes me like crazy because if I'm honest, most of my prayers probably revolve around my kingdom and not Jesus' kingdom. So, Father, would you let my will be done today? And, Father, would you let me have the comfort and the leisure and the convenience that I long for today? When you're inconvenienced and it just, like, gets all over you, it's kind of like Jeff Foxworthy when he said, here's your sign. It's like, there's your kingdom. Like, like you're just like, there, that's it, man. And I feel like most of my prayers are, God, just give me a comfortable life down here. 
Give me the things I want. Make sure that things aren't too tough. And then beam me up when it's my time. No, man. Jesus said, I want you guys, I want Fellowship Paragold to start praying right now. God, would you let your kingdom so invade our hearts and our church in the city of Paragold that this place gets completely transformed from the inside out and upside down? Like, what would it look like if you woke up tomorrow and the kingdom of God was fully present in Paragold as it is in heaven? If God had his way with your life, what would your life look like? What would your pace be? How would you get out of bed? What would your habits be? What would your practices be? What would you do when nobody's looking? You know what our city would look like? Addictions would be broken. Shame would be gone. Guilt forgiven. Fear overcome. Social justice carried out. The hungry are fed, orphans are adopted, widows are cared for, foreigners are welcomed. There are no more dividing lines in our city. No more does the, do the railroad tracks divide east and west. And you have two different people groups that live on either of those sides that don't really intermingle. That, that, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. No more are there racial dividing lines or social class or tax bracket dividing lines. It doesn't mean that we're all the same, like, they're, they're, but there's unity through diversity. There's unity through diversity. And you know what the most fundamental characteristic is? When the kingdom of God fully breaks into Paragould and fully breaks into our church and breaks into your life, the number one mark and characteristic that you'll experience is love. And... Right on the tail end of it, joy. Because you will finally realize uh, the, the, the truth that the king has been trying to get you to realize since day one. You are perfectly known and perfectly loved in my kingdom. So pray for this, he says. Like cry out. This is, this is a prayer God wants to answer, guys. Like join me in praying for this. And then he says, let's not only pray for this, but let's be active and let's pursue this. And so he calls us to be a people who pursue the kingdom down here. Matthew 6.33. Seek first, pursue above all else the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This raises a question for us, right? Whose kingdom are you seeking down here? And I think you can answer that with another question. What is it that rules your heart? What rules your heart? What is it that governs your affections? What is it that you're waiting and longing for and desiring that you believe would satisfy you and make you whole? Because whatever that is, that's your kingdom. And here's the thing. You know, that, that, that's a famous verse, right? Seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus, te- Jesus commands that right in the heart of teaching on anxiety. He mentions anxiety. He says, don't be anxious six times. And then right after that, he says, instead of worrying about all this stuff that makes you anxious, pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this other stuff will take care of itself. If you, if you pursue your kingdom down here instead of Jesus' kingdom, it is a recipe for anxiety. You, because you can never have enough. And you can never control it. You know, if you want to live for sex and money and relationships and kids and Look, all that stuff is, all those are good things. But if you take good things and make them ultimate things, that's a bad thing. 
and it will make a very bad king in your life, and it will enslave you. Because at any moment, it can all come crashing down, right? And it's on you to hold it all together. How many of you feel like you're struggling to hold it together? Would you raise your hand? Just a few of you. I want to talk to the rest of you are lying. All right? (laughs) Struggling to hold it together. You feel like you're running around trying to hold all these walls up and keep this little plastic kingdom from falling in on you. One day it will. It's like if you pursue your kingdom down here, the reality is your kingdom is about as stable and as sturdy as a plastic Princess Sophia castle. And so it's a recipe for anxiety. Jesus says, hey, little children, don't worry about this. Pursue my kingdom. It's better for you. I'm a better king. I love this. I love this, man. In Hebrews uh, 13 says, or Hebrews 12, 28 12.28 says, let us be grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Our kingdoms are shaky. Jesus says, I want to give you a kingdom that's unshakable. You can't break it down. It's everything you're longing for. Pursue him. Make him your treasure. I realize I don't have a lot of illustrations, so I'm just borrowing from Jesus. But there's this story he tells in Matthew 13 where he says, the kingdom of God is like this dude who finds a treasure in a field. And he does something that's kind of seemingly dishonest. He finds this treasure and he's like, wow, this is everything I've been longing for my whole life. He knows he can't take it because that's stealing. So what does he do? He buries it, right? And then he goes and sells everything he has and goes back and buys that field and digs up the treasure and then clings to it with everything he's got because he's finally found everything he's ever longed for. Jesus says, yeah, my kingdom's like that. You want to be happy? You want to find a redemptive ending to your story? You want to be saved? You want to be delivered? You want to be healed? You want to be whole? Go sell everything else you've got. Cast down all other counterfeit kings and make Jesus your treasure. Pursue him. And then practice. All right? Jesus says, um, here's the call of the king, is to practice the kingdom of God down here. Again, we're not waiting to participate in the kingdom of God. We're doing it now. And so I think the greatest summary of what it means to practice the kingdom of God, you see in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus gives us examples of what life in his kingdom looks like. Quickly, he says, being salt and light where there's moral darkness and decay, honoring Jesus with your sexuality and your desires, being faithful to your spouse, honoring God with your money, uh, giving to the poor, Forgiving those, listen to this, guys, forgiving those who have offended you and seeking the forgiveness of those whom you have offended. Loving your enemies. Jesus says, when you live this way, you are bringing the kingdom of God to bear on earth. So, I mean, the questions I I think we have to ask is like, who do you need to forgive today? If you want to practice the kingdom of God now, who do you need to forgive today? Whose forgiveness do you need to go seek? Like when you leave here, who do you need, who, who do you need to call? And say, look, I, I blew this. I'm sorry. I, haven't, I know I haven't talked to you in years. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, where do you need to repent for the way you spend your money or like what you do with your body? Like, look, all this matters. Jesus says you've been called to portray the kingdom of God here on earth. And lastly, he says you've been called to proclaim the kingdom of God here on earth. 
So 2 Corinthians 5, I love this. Once again, God is sharing his kingdom with us. Because 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, you are now ambassadors of King Jesus. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you live in Paragold and you live where you live and you do what you do and you're put there for a reason by the king to be his representative, to be an ambassador for the king. It's not, it's not for your own agenda. It's for his agenda. And you know what ambassadors do fundamentally? They speak on behalf of the king. They've all been entrusted with a message and then dispatched. Here, you go from this nation to that nation, or you go from this place to this place, and you tell them, this is what the king says. This is what I say. Paul says, we've been entrusted with the message of reconciliation, the gospel of the kingdom. Everybody in this city is waiting on good news. We're called to share it with them. And you share good news, right? Like, when you get pregnant or you get a job promotion or whatever, like that blows up your Instagram and Facebook because good news is meant to be shared, right? You just do it instinctively. We've been entrusted with the greatest news in all of the universe, the gospel of the kingdom. And he says, you want to know what it looks like to live in my kingdom now? Go in my power with my authority and share this with the world and watch what he will do because you will see the kingdom of God take over in this place. Now, I think all this teaching should leave us with one burning question, one last question. How is this even possible? We've committed mutiny. Like, let's not, let's not forget this. We have all said, I want to rule without you, God. My, let my kingdom come and my will be done in my life as it is in my life. Like, that's our prayer, right? So how is it possible that the king is going to come and save these rebels and love and forgive these rebels and maintain his justice and be fair? And that brings us to the coronation of the king. I love this, man. Here's what you see in Jesus' coronation where he manifests himself to be the king. It's the most unthinkable thing. No other king has ever done this in the history of the universe. Whereas every other king uh, you give yourself to will only take your life, Jesus gives his life for you. And whereas we have tried to take his place on his throne, he has taken our place on the cross. The the greatest news in all the universe, guys, is that the king gave his life for the rebels. The king gave his life for the rebels. We took his place on the throne. He took our place on the cross. Instead of a crown with jewels, he was crowned with a crown of thorns. Instead of being glorified and praised, he was mocked and spit upon. Instead of being lifted up and exalted on a throne, he was lifted up and exalted on a cross. And death and sin and the powers of hell thought they had him. And Jesus said, you suckers are fooled, man, because the reality is this is how I'm going to draw all men to myself. This is how I'm going to show myself to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the king you were made for and the king you long for, the only king who doesn't want to take everything from you and enslave you, but who wants to love you and set you free. And Paul says this in Colossians 1. He says, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.